Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 46, the second episode of our Rosh Hashanah series for the Jewish year of 5773. As Rabbi Shalom continues to explore the Torah, we can reflect on the history and archaeology that helps us better understand when the Torah was written and why. We also invite you to join us for the Yom Kippur services, September 25th and 26th, at the Gorton Center in Lake Forest, Illinois. More information about attendance can be found on our website, kolhadash.com. When I was an undergrad, I took a work-study job in the library as assistant to the Judaica curator. My favorite tasks were when I got to handle old books. A Talmud set printed in Amsterdam in the 1720s, an exhibition of Passover Haggadot from the past 1,000 years, or the time I was sent out to find out what Jewish books could still be checked out that were too old to be circulating. And so I went up to the stacks, and right away I found 15 different sets of the works of Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, in various languages, all printed over 250 years ago. They may have been given to the Yale Library brand new, but the library was that old that now they were too old to circulate. How often do you get to flip through books like that, seeing medieval Haggadot with wine stains on them from when they were actually used for a Seder? We hear a lot these days about transcendence, about connecting with something beyond yourself. When I held those books, when I read their words, and I imagined who else in my Jewish family might have also held these books and read these books, I felt that connection. I knew that I was part of something greater than myself, not a cosmic force or a supernatural plane, I was touching a people through its history. Needless to say, those copies of Josephus were sent to the rare book library right away to live there alongside a Gutenberg Bible. The more traditional might celebrate the Talmud and the Haggadot, but dismiss Josephus the historian. There's a story that when Napoleon's armies were marching through Lithuania at the beginning of the 19th century on their way to Moscow, Rabbinic students left their benches and ran to the window to watch the soldiers go by. The head rabbi of the yeshiva called them back to their studies, and they responded, we're witnessing world-changing events out there. And the rabbi answered, no, what we're doing in here, studying Torah and Talmud, that's changing the world. The earliest rabbis who closed the Hebrew Bible, the men who decided what was in and what was out, they did not preserve Josephus. They did not preserve the historical books of the Maccabees. The Torah ends with the end of Deuteronomy, and every time the Torah emerges from the ark, the rabbis decreed Zotah Torah, this is the Torah that Moses placed before the children of Israel from the mouth of God by the hand of Moses. With that pedigree, who needs history? History was less important than theology, and so the Torah, the rabbinic Bible, the rabbinic ark was not wide enough to include history. Ours is. When we consider our Torah, our Ark, our storehouse of wisdom, what will we include? Certainly our earliest mythology, as we explored last night. We will also need our corrective, our companion, our commentary to the myth, the real history of the Jewish people as best we can discover it. From what we know from evidence and serious study, real Jewish history does not begin with Adam and Eve, not Noah, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses, not Joshua. 
No land was promised to the patriarchs. No nation went forth from Egypt in a mass exodus. By the way, never say mass exodus. Have you ever heard of a one-person exodus? <laughs> in the days of Joshua, Jericho was abandoned. No trumpets blew. No walls came a-tumbling down. Now, does American history sound like this? Mr. United States had 48 sons who traveled with their mothers to different parts of the land. Mama Midwest settled down in the center of the country, and her sons Illinois and Michigan and Iowa all planted their roots. Now, for that matter, does American history today sound like this? Virtuous pioneers in covered wagons traveled west to open an empty frontier, generously bringing civilization to the savages who were squandering the land. Those savages would, without provocation, massacre the settlers, and therefore, they had to be forced onto reservations for their own good. Now, some of us might have learned U.S. history that way, but that isn't what American history is today. You see, the stories, the myths may stay the same, but history is always changing. In the traditional reading cycle, the Torah portions after the High Holidays describe the end of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, the very end of the Torah. Deuteronomy as a whole is Moses' farewell address, retelling what happened during his career and the laws that Israel must follow. The problem is that sometimes the details change in the retelling. The Ten Commandments in Exodus say, Zachor, remember the Sabbath. Well, Deuteronomy, when retelling those commandments, says, Shamor, keep the Sabbath. Remember the very end we read last night. Moses dies and is buried and, quote, no man knows where his tomb is to this day. Joshua takes over, and the last words in the Torah are, Since then there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt. Now elsewhere in the books of Moses, Moses is described as the most humble man who ever lived. Does the humblest man who ever lived write that he is the greatest prophet ever? For that matter, does the humblest man who ever lived describe himself as the humblest man who ever lived? <laughs> and how does he describe his death and what happened afterwards? Now, for the miracle inclined, this is no problem at all. Prophets see the future, so Moses knew it would always be true that since then there has not arisen a prophet like Moses. One rabbi imagined that Moses wrote those words about his own death through his tears. Now, as I've joked before, we are firmly in the world of nonprofit organizations. Our explanation for this dilemma? The same answer that got Spinoza excommunicated. These words must have been written later. Once we realize that Deuteronomy was finished later, we ask other questions. Who really wrote it? Why did they write it? When was it written? What else was happening around it? And as we asked last night, is it accurate? The Torah claims to be history. It claims to be an accurate record of events from the creation of the world through the creation of the Jewish people. It provides origins for everything from human nature to specific place names to Jewish cultural practices. The only problem is that it's not right. Not only is the Torah not historically accurate, it's not even consistent with itself. Nor, uh, Moses was described as a unique prophet whom Yahweh knew face to face. But Exodus 33 says, you cannot see my face, 
for man may not see me and live. A curtain is to be draped over the Ark of the Covenant, and when God is present, a cloud will appear on the outside of the curtain, but no one may see his face. So did Moses see God's face or not? Or is this another example of pay no attention to that man behind the curtain? <laughs> the real irony is that even though the Torah claims to be a history, the Torah itself is the artifact, the object to discover and dissect, the archeological site to excavate, layers of authors and editors, historical and cultural forces that collaborated on its creation. Our challenge is to discover the history behind the story. The Torah is a kind of mythic historical fiction, seeing earlier generations in the image of later ones. Since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. You only write that centuries later. History can turn into myth, and sometimes by mistake. A prophecy in Isaiah said young girl in Hebrew, which became virgos, or virgin, in Greek, and we know where that went. Now, even in my own experience, I once performed a wedding for a friend in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we were friends in college. She and her fiance, it turns out, were both full Chinese on both sides, but neither one was particularly religious. And so having a friend do the wedding was more important for them than tradition, and for me it was an easy wedding gift, so I was happy to do it. The day of the wedding, got the wedding uh, marriage license, I took a look at the license. The groom was listed as 32 years old, and the bride was 1,931 years old. <laughs> I checked again. The groom's birth year was written as 1975 and the bride's birth year was listed as 0075. And no one had checked the form until I saw it. Now, later generations may wonder what was going on, but I knew the truth. Methuselah's biblical record of 969 years was intact. This was just a lazy clerk. Now, at the wedding ceremony itself, we were at the bottom of a beautiful staircase, we were just about to start the ceremony when an aunt of one side or the other was trying to get another picture, bumped into a banister, and this huge glass vase began to teeter, almost to fall. One of uh, my friend's friends was thinking very fast, and he ran and caught it before it smashed. We got everything settled, we continued the ceremony, and 15 minutes after the ceremony was over, I realized what I should have said at that moment when he caught the vase. You're supposed to break a glass at the end of the wedding. Now, when I write my autobiography, that's what I'll say. <laughs> the real history of our people is much more complicated, much more uncertain. It's not what we want it to be, it is what it was. Our real history is also much more interesting and more believable. Based on what we know, the Hebrew people emerged in the hill country between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. They were cousins of the Canaanites with the same language, the same material culture, the same pantheon of gods and goddesses. Eventually, one Hebrew god was promoted and the others slowly rejected. Though it wasn't really until Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians that two theological masterstrokes created the Torah we have today. Military defeat used to mean theological defeat. Your gods battled their gods and made the better god win. In this case, the Yahweh theologians flipped it around. Yahweh wanted Jerusalem destroyed. He caused us to lose because of all the things we were doing wrong. 
He said it very clearly in those commandments we were ignoring. No idols, I am a jealous God, so have no other gods before me. He warned us what would happen if we disobeyed his most perfect revelation, given to the best of all prophets ever. He brought the Babylonians to punish us, and our only hope is to get back to the straight and narrow. The only hope is to turn from these rules neither to the right nor to the left, to follow the priests enacting Moses' laws, the priests who claim descent from Moses' brother Aaron. Now, who would you guess wrote that? Maybe a priest? Maybe a priest of the house of Aaron? Now, from our historical perspective, this is post-dated prophecy, where the Torah says, if you break this covenant, this will happen. That is what already happened when they wrote it. Priests assembled the Torah during the Babylonian dispersion, the beginnings of Jewish diaspora, to explain Jewish suffering and to save Yahweh's reputation, not to mention their own. If you questioned their authority, they could point to their history, or more accurately, their reading, their writing of history. The second masterstroke. This Torah cemented the priest's political power. You see, politics and religion have always been bedfellows, not only in recent years. In this case, the priests used to have two major rivals. The kings were taken care of by the Babylonians. The prophets were radicals who heard voices and criticized authorities like the priests for doing things wrong. Well, now the priests had a very simple response. You claim to be a prophet of Yahweh? Here we have the final revelation from the best prophet who ever lived. And guess who this document leaves in charge? The house of Aaron, his brother. So thank you very much, Mr. Prophet. Bye-bye. Do you see what putting Jewish history into the ark, into the high holidays, what history does for the Torah and for our Judaism? History gives us context to understand the story. Who wrote it and why? You see, now you know why Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy and why affirming his status, that he saw God face to face, was more important than consistency. Now you know why Deuteronomy is filled with threats and punishments and why there are so many laws of priestly purity in Leviticus. Our mitzvah students ask these questions of the Torah. Who and when and why? How many others do? The stories are important, and the history provides a fascinating companion text that informs us even deeper. Sally Hemings was a slave owned by Thomas Jefferson. Her descendants preserved a memory that they were the children of that partnership, let's say. Now, the white heirs of Jefferson denied this truth until genetic testing made it very, very hard to deny. It may not have been what they wanted to believe, but facts could be very discourteous. Consider Jewish genetics. Some on one end of the spectrum question with all of our genetic diversity whether it makes sense to speak of one Jewish people at all. Others imagine Jewish purity in a bubble throughout history. We may ask, why do Jews in Iran look different from Jews in India, who look different from Jews in Poland, who look different from Jews in Algeria? We find that male Jewish genetic descent is marked more strongly, while Jewish female genetics are more mixed. Surprise, Jewish men married local women. You see, intercultural marriage itself is not only modern, its history is the key to what made us who we really are today. 
An inconvenient truth may still be true. Last night, I asked you to consider what changes if we go beyond myth. Our mitzvah students are just one example. What we teach in Sunday school, what we say if we read from the Torah scroll, how we treat the scroll in our ark, our very philosophy of Jewish identity. We can read Jewish history as a history of persecution or as a series of golden ages or something in between. We can see the meaning of Jewish history as the priests did, a chosen people whose obedience to commandments turns the wheel of history, or Jewish history is a lesson in human self-reliance in the face of an indifferent universe. Perhaps Jewish history teaches us the evolution of peoples and cultures, the importance of diversity and adaptability. Just like a myth, we can read the same history in different ways. Is freedom good for the Jews or problematic? Or both? That same Lithuanian rabbi, the head of the yeshiva, who said, ignore Napoleon, study Talmud, he was also asked, for whose victory should we pray, Napoleon or the Tsar? He said, pray for the Tsar. Even though Tsarist oppression might be bad for Jews, it's good for Judaism. From his perspective, enlightenment freedom was bad for Judaism, even if it might be good for individual Jews. Our perspective, freedom has been good for both Jews and for Judaism. Most important, we read Jewish history for inspiration. We create meaning in life. There is no master plan, no chosen people, no judgment or punishment that could explain the suffering and disaster. There are moments of discovery, finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, even those copies of Josephus in a forgotten corner of a university library. History can confirm what we believe in dramatic fashion, or it can change everything we thought we knew. Jewish history is like us, discovering our own family secrets, learning the truth about who we really are, what we really believe and value. We celebrate the dignity of truth. If we can handle the truth about our past, our family, our history, then we can live the truth about ourselves. I once heard that there are two Japanese words for problematic truth. One is for the truth that everyone knows is false but publicly affirms to be true. Another word for the truth that everyone says is false but secretly knows is true. What about you? Is there a truth about yourself waiting to be discovered under layers of history and myth? Is there a truth about you that you know to be true that no one else knows? What difference would it make if everyone knew it and it were no longer hidden. The truth is that Moses did not write his own story, as very few of us do. History is a dish best served with the side of perspective, just as our Torah lives best in partnership with the history of the Jewish people. One is how we imagined we came to be, the other is how we truly became who we are. Two perspectives, one people. I want to wish you and yours, the Shana Tava, a happy and healthy new year. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.